Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading together verses 14 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through verse 24. This passage comes after Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. And this is God coming both in judgment and in grace to our first parents. Well, please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please now turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading together verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking about how the new covenant, the Gentiles have been grafted into the new covenant community. But as he's speaking about this very important aspect of the new covenant, he also speaks about the nature of the Old Testament covenants. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. Uh, this morning we will be reciting together Belgic Confession Article 17. Belgic Confession Article 17. Well, congregation of Christ, what do you believe about the recovery of fallen man? We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and make him blessed. Let's pray and ask that the Lord bless our consideration this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us in, in your two books of Revelation. Oh Lord, we do stand in amazement at your book of creation in which all creatures serve as signs and words and symbols which point to your divinity and power and glory and majesty. Oh Lord, but we give you thanks most of all for your written word. We thank you that in your kind providence you have preserved your word through millennia that we here today might be able to draw nourishment and comfort from it. And so we ask that in this moment we would be edified, we would be comforted as we think about your unfolding plan of redemption that is revealed in Holy Scripture. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, boys and girls, it's been a few weeks, but according to the Belgian Confession, what are we called to do with our hearts and what are we called to do with our mouths? Marcus? Very good. And what is God? What is God according to the Belgian Confession? Violet? 
Yeah, single, simple, and spiritual. How do we come to know who God is? How does God reveal himself? Isaiah? You're going to call on a creation. creation. Very good. Yes, the Bible and creation. Um, uh, they reveal to us who God is as creator, as sustainer, and as redeemer. You may have noticed that the Belgian Confession has sort of been going through the main articles of doctrine. And so the Belgian Confession uh, went on to speak about the doctrine of sin, original sin, and um, the last time we were together, we talked about election and reprobation, which are a manifestation of two attributes of God. Anyone remember what attributes of God we consider? Emilani? Merciful and just. Yes, merciful and just. God's mercy is demonstrated in election, and God's justice is demonstrated in reprobation. Well, today we are going to be considering God's uh, grace his mercy, his salvation as it unfolds in the various covenants of Scripture. And so now in the Belgian Confession, we are in the grace section. Um, we are in the grace section as we think about God's grace for sinners. And so this article is really all about the unfolding grace of God as it's manifest in the various covenants of Scripture. Now, you may have heard the term covenant of grace or covenants of grace, maybe to be more specific. And uh, this language comes in part from Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2, this passage that we recently read, Paul speaks about these covenants of promise. He, he speaks about the Old Testament covenants as covenants of a promise through which Christ was offered to the people living within those covenants. So this is part of the reason why Theologians in the past have referred to these covenants of Scripture as covenants of grace. They're covenants through which the grace of God and Christ were administered to the people living within them. Now, Belgic Confession 17 doesn't use the term covenant of grace or covenants of grace. So the term isn't present, but the concept is. The concept is present here in Belgic Confession 17. This article very clearly teaches that from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, there's always been only one plan of salvation for the people of God. You'll notice that the Belgic Confession quotes um, Genesis 3.15. It references um, Genesis 3, and then it also uh, speaks about how Jesus' birth, his incarnation, was the fulfillment of Genesis 3. It's summarizing the entire unfolding drama of redemptive history, which unfolds by the, uh, through the means of covenant. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is just to briefly consider these various covenants of Scripture, which begins in, in Genesis 3 and is completed in Revelation 22. And these covenants, are these covenants of grace are the means through which God unfolds his plan of salvation. The covenants of grace are God's response to Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so let's begin at the beginning. 
As we heard in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, God's response to Adam and Eve's sin is to come both in judgment and in grace. God comes both in judgment and in grace. In Genesis 3.15, God both curses the serpent, but he also gives a promise of special redemptive grace to both Adam and Eve. He tells the serpent that there will be a singular male offspring from the seed of the woman who will one day crush his head. God is promising our first parents that salvation from death and salvation from the dominion of the devil will come through this offspring of the woman. And then at the end of Genesis 3, what does Adam do? Well, Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Many theologians see this as a confession or profession of faith by Adam. Adam recognizes the promise of Genesis 3.15 and believes that God will send this singular male offspring from his wife and believes that Jesus Christ is that second Adam who will do what he failed to do. And so the covenant of grace or the covenants of grace begins here in Genesis 3.15. Boys and girls, I've used this illustration uh, for you in the past, but you can think of of the covenant of grace as sort of like a, a five paragraph essay that you have to write for school. You begin that paper with a main point at the beginning, and then each successive paragraph unfolds or unpacks that original main point. Well, the main point of scripture is Genesis 3.15 and every successive covenant unfolds or unpacks or gives more information about the original main point of Genesis 3.15. And therefore, the fountainhead of the covenant of grace is Genesis 3.15, where God is promising to send a second Adam who will bring the people of God into God's seventh day Sabbath rest, something that the first Adam failed to complete failed to do. Well, what is the next covenant that we come across? Um, Well, the the next covenant we come across is the covenant with Noah. But before we consider the covenant with Noah, another helpful way to think about these covenants of grace is like an acorn growing up into an oak tree. One theologian describes Genesis 3.15 like that of an uh, acorn. Um, and then each successive covenant is like that acorn sprouting and growing into a mature and uh, sturdy oak tree. And so that's what we see when we read scripture. We see this, this seed of the gospel growing as, as God continues to develop his plan of salvation. And so the next covenant that we come across is this covenant with Noah. And as I said in our uh, Genesis sermon series, there are essentially two covenants that God makes with Noah. The first covenant is in Genesis 9, and the second covenant is in Genesis, or the first covenant is in Genesis 6, and the second covenant is in Genesis 9. That second covenant is really a covenant of common or preserving grace. It's not a part of God's um, covenant of grace that we're thinking about today. But that first covenant is, that first covenant is a covenant of special redemptive grace. If you remember in Genesis 6, God promised righteous Noah, that he would preserve both Noah and his family through the waters of judgment through an ark. God promised that he would preserve righteous Noah through the waters of the flood through an ark. So you might ask, what does this covenant teach us 
about that original gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. What does this covenant teach us about the seed of the woman, about the work and ministry of the second Adam? Well, it teaches us that this second Adam will be perfectly righteous. The righteousness of Noah was, was but a faint echo of the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this covenant with Noah also teaches us that through Christ, we will be preserved through the just condemnation and wrath of God. Christ, in this sense, will be our ark when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so you can see this covenant with Noah is giving us more information. We see that acorn seed of the gospel developing as God makes this covenantal promise with Noah. Well, as you continue to read on in the book of Genesis, you come to the patriarch Abram or Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, we learn about the Abrahamic covenant that God makes with our forefather. And as we considered earlier this morning, God essentially makes three promises with our forefather Abram. He promises to give Abram a land, a, a people, and he promises to bless the nations through his family. Now, as I said earlier this morning, all these promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And thus, the Abrahamic covenant teaches us that this seed of the woman, Christ, the second Adam, will bring us not to an earthly land in the Middle East. Christ will bring us to heaven. God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. The Abrahamic covenant teaches us that Christ is the true offspring of Abram. And through Christ, God will bless the nations. The Abrahamic family through Christ will take upon itself an international character. And so, in the Abrahamic covenant, we learn more about Genesis 3.15 and the work of the seed of the woman that God will bring into this world. Well, fast forward some more, and we come across the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel at the, foot of, at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses as their mediator. This is sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant and spans most of the pages of the Old Testament. And in this covenant, God gives his people the temple and the Mosaic Law. The temple was the place where the people of God offered their sacrifices as an atonement for their sin. And the Mosaic law was the means through which Israel would maintain life in the earthly land of Canaan, the earthly representation of heaven. And so what does this covenant, this covenant which spans most of the pages of our Old Testament, what does this covenant teach us about Christ, about the seed of the woman? How does it unfold that original promise of Genesis 3.15? Well, this covenant teaches us that Christ is the true temple of God. Christ, as he comes to this earth, is the tabernacling presence of God among the people of God. Christ reveals the glory and presence of God just as the Old Testament sanctuary revealed the presence and glory of Yahweh. This covenant teaches us that Christ will offer the definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. A sacrifice that is infinitely greater than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. 
this covenant also teaches us that Christ is the more perfect Israel of God. Christ will perfectly keep the law of God so that we can maintain life, not in the earthly land of Canaan, but in the heavenly Jerusalem. Through the righteousness of Christ, we inherit the new creation. And that inheritance is secured through the merits of our Lord. And so the Mosaic Covenant teaches us a lot about the work of the second Adam. A lot about how the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of, our, of the serpent. Well, within the Mosaic Covenant, God also makes a covenant with David, King David, the prototypical king of the people of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 7, David, who is king over Israel, longs to build God a permanent sanctuary. Up until this point, the Ark of the Covenant had been traveling around in a tent. And David desired to build a permanent structure for the Ark of God, the presence of God among his people. And what is God's response to David? God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. Rather, I'm going to build you a house. That is to say, I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. From this point forward, kingship in Judah will run through your lineage. And furthermore, one of your uh, descendants will be a perfect king. And because of his righteousness, he will earn and merit an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. And so we may ask, what does this covenant with, with David teach us about Christ, the second Adam? What does this covenant with David teach us about Genesis 3.15? Well, it teaches us that Jesus is the true son of David. He is that perfect son who earned and merited that everlasting throne and everlasting kingdom. Jesus is our king who continues to reign to this present day as he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Well, all of these covenants, all of these covenants of, of promise, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, are fulfilled in the new covenant. What does Jesus do at the Last Supper? He takes the cup and he raises it and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples at that moment that he the second Adam is here. He's here as that long-awaited seed of the woman. He's here as our ark. He's here as the offspring, singular offspring of Abraham. He is here as the temple of God. He is here to offer himself as the definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He is here as the righteousness of God. And he is here as the true son of David. Jesus is saying that he is here enacting a new covenant, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament covenants, and he enacts this new covenant through the shedding of his blood. And through the shedding of his blood, Jesus creates a new covenant people. Now, you may have noticed at the end of Ephesians 2, Paul used a metaphor to describe the new covenant community. He used the metaphor of a temple. And he says that Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. The apostles and the new covenant prophets are the foundation of this temple. 
And Peter in 1 Peter 3 tells us that we, ordinary Christians who live after the time of the apostles, we are living bricks stacked upon this foundation. This is the makeup of the new covenant community. Now, Christ inaugurates the new covenant in his first advent. He won't consummate this new covenant until his second advent, or to use the imagery of that temple. Christ began this building project in his first advent through his life, death, and resurrection. He won't finish the building project of the new covenant community until his second coming. Now listen to what we read in uh, Revelation 21 as John describes the consummation, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now that last phrase that John refers to, that I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the heartbeat of every covenant that's included in the covenant of grace. And it is a formula that will be repeated at the end of the age when our God will consummate the new creation. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so we see in Revelation 21 and 22, this acorn seed of the gospel uh, develop, developing into a fully grown mature oak tree. And so uh, there are many, many differences in the various epochs of Scripture. In fact, those are the things that are easy to discern. However, no matter what epoch an individual lived under, God administered the same salvation, faith in Christ alone. And so it's these covenants of grace that function like a thread that tie together the entirety of Scripture from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. So yes, there are a lot of unique things when you consider Noah and Abraham and Mo Moses and David and Israel in exile and then the new covenant. But what ties all of these various epochs together are these covenants of grace in which God administered the same salvation, faith, in Christ alone that's given freely by his sovereign, um, sovereign grace. And so as you reflect upon your own view of scripture, do you, uh, do you see scripture as being fundamentally unified from Genesis to Revelation? Or do you view scripture merely as a compilation of disparate texts? Do you marvel at the beauty of God's plan of salvation? I mean, when you think about God's unfolding plan of salvation, it is beautiful. When you see the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, as you see the types and shadows that God gives us to give us a, a full or picture of the work of the second Adam, and then as you consider how Christ in his incarnation fulfills all of those types, shadows, promises, and prophecies, it is beautiful. It is a work of a divine artist. So do you marvel at the beauty of redemptive history? When you read scripture, do you merely see moral maxims 
that apply to life in this world? Or do you see the gospel? Do you hear the gospel? A message that is counterintuitive that you can't find anywhere else in this creation. Well, we confess along with Article 17 that we believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, saves sinners. That's what covenant theology is all about. Our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, saves sinners. He does this beginning in Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22. Let's pray.